This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. John chapter 3. We're going to read the first 17 verses. Seek to celebrate Advent from John chapter 3. This is God's Word, holy, inspired, and errant, authoritative in our lives. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet You don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe If I tell you heavenly things, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Praise the Lord. God is near and He is at work in your life. He will freely give you everything that you need. Christmas is about God's love for the world. He loved the world and so He sent His one and only Son into the world to be lifted up so the world could receive the gift of life. The result of the love of God for the world is the mission of Jesus Christ. God's ultimate purpose in sending His Son is the salvation of those in the world who believe in Him. Whoever believes in Him, our text here, verses 3 and 5, whoever believes in Him experiences this new birth. They have eternal life. Whoever believes in Him is saved. The alternative is to perish, to lose your life, to be doomed to destruction. There is no other third option. Verse 17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The purpose of the mission is the theme of this chapter of the one and only Son of God who was born in a manger, sent into the world, was not to condemn the world. He was sent so that the world might be saved through Him. The purpose was to save the world. The believer is not condemned. And will not be condemned. God has given this Son of Man authority. He has authority to pronounce judgment. But He was not sent to pronounce condemnation. God the Son came into a world that was already lost and condemned. He didn't come into a neutral world in, in order to save some and condemn others. He came into a lost world. That's the nature of this world. And Jesus was sent so the world might be saved through him. He's got a purpose. He's doing something. Nicodemus is in the dark. Have you noticed the disaster taking place behind us? Behind our land and building here? I've run out a couple times and tried to save a few trees and been unsuccessful. It can look to me, now that they're moving dirt around, like a bunch of six-year-olds have gotten on earth-moving equipment and are playing in the dirt. I just want to say, what, what are you guys doing over here? It's like you're digging out this side of the hill and you're hauling dirt over to this side to the, of the hill. And there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. You're just, and they're making this massive dirt pile right behind us. Oh, how lovely. 
Are you playing in the, in the dirt? Is there a, an adult in charge of any of this? One of my grandsons last week, he's six years old, said to me, did you see the pile? And I misunderstood him initially, but even when I realized what he was saying, it didn't make any sense to me. Did you see the pile? He was very excited. And then I realized he meant that pile of dirt behind the building, that mountain piled up behind us. And to him, it made perfect sense. It was like a grand purpose, and he wanted grandfather to know, did you see that pile? Now, I don't really think six-year-olds are driving earth-moving equipment. It is adults being led by people who know exactly what they're doing. And when they're done, we're going to go, oh, there was a reason for that. I still won't be happy about it. But this is kind of like what was going on with Nicodemus and the first advent, the coming of Christ. Why was Jesus born in a manger? Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, and even to him, it's confusing. He's skeptical. He's marveling. He's, he's amazed. He's confused. He should have known. But he didn't understand. He came at night. John does this intentionally to try to remind us or to reveal to us that Nicodemus is in the dark about the mission of Jesus. And here in chapter 3, Jesus is revealing truth to a teacher of Israel about why he has come about Christmas, about Advent. He is coming into a dark world where even the teacher of the people of God doesn't understand, and he is shedding light and reveal. He's the great revealer, and he's showing us why he came. So let's consider John 3 and Jesus' interaction with this Pharisee. God had a divine purpose in sending and giving His one and only Son into the world. And, and Christmas, that's what Christmas is about. At this point in the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus has been ministering in the world. He's done mighty signs and people have noticed. Even the Jewish leaders can't deny it. And this story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus takes place early in His ministry. And John is using it to give us an understanding of why Jesus came. So, here is his mission and purpose. Number one, we learn the reason for Christmas is God's plan to save the world. The reason for that first advent of Christ is God's plan to save the world. Verse one, there came this Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, he came by night. He says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Rome was ruling Palestine. She ruled her empire with relative tolerance to the local cultures. 
And so they would come in and they would work with these elite leaders in the local communities like Nicodemus. They would be the ones that would benefit from Roman rule. Ordinary people, they just paid taxes, but guys like Nicodemus would benefit. And so he was a leader. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Apparently he's an old man, a Pharisee, and a distinguished teacher. He was an aristocrat. He's also an example of people who in some sense believed in Jesus, but their faith is inadequate. John has talked about these people in chapter 2 to kind of tee it up for Nicodemus because he's an example. Advent is about more than a man who has come from God. That's what Nicodemus thinks. Verse 2, we know your teacher come from God. His, his signs are what has aroused this kind of faith. Nicodemus is in the dark, but he is intrigued by the signs. What we'll learn in the Gospel of John is eventually he becomes a true believer. So that's exciting. Because of these miraculous signs, though, at this point, he's, he's already convinced Jesus is no ordinary teacher. So he's coming, and he wants to find out more about him. But he doesn't believe all that John has already communicated in this Gospel. In chapter 1, he has said things about Jesus Nicodemus doesn't know about. For example, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made, all things were created through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory. As of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Nicodemus didn't know any of this. We have this in the prologue to this gospel. Verse 16. For from Him. From His fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is not just a man that has come from God. D.A. Carson writes, John 1 summarizes how the Word, which was with God in the very beginning, came into the sphere of time history and tangibility, in other words, how the Son of God was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory and grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. The rest of the book, the Gospel of John, is nothing other than an expansion of this theme. And that's what we're reading about in John 3. It's why John includes this story of Nicodemus at different points in his gospel. He's disclosing the grace of God. Nicodemus did not believe in the pre-existence 
of Jesus Christ. He just thought God was unusually with this man. He was a long way from seeing that Jesus was the promised coming one that the whole Old Testament was pointing to. He just didn't see that. He didn't see that this is God the Son incarnate. Verse 3, so Jesus answered him. Don't you love it when he answers a question that hadn't been asked? Doesn't feel like. He answered him, truly, truly, I say to you. And when he, when he says that, which he does three times in our text, what he means is, I am saying something that's important, it's certain, it's trustworthy. Pay close attention. Three times in our text. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What, what Jesus is doing here, Nicodemus wants to evaluate Jesus. That's why it feels like Jesus is answering a question that wasn't asked, because what he's doing is he's not allowing Nicodemus to evaluate him. He's going to evaluate Nicodemus. Nicodemus wants to say, are, are you the Messiah? I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. He's a distinguished teacher. He knows what the Messiah is supposed to look like. I'm going to look at you and I'm going to decide if you're the Messiah. And Jesus doesn't even go there. He rejects this attempt. He is challenging Nicodemus' authority to evaluate these kinds of heavenly things. Nicodemus thinks too highly of himself. His understanding of spiritual things, of heavenly things, is not what he thinks it is. He thinks he can see, but he's in the dark. You cannot see these things until you are born again. No one can see them. He should be asking Am I ready for the one that is coming? But instead, he's trying to evaluate the one that has come. You can't see the kingdom of God. Advent is about the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus came so people can see the kingdom. So that they, verse 5, can enter the kingdom. He's the inaugurator of the kingdom of God. He's the inaugurator of the age to come. Jesus, God the Son, came to bring the kingdom. Kingdom is where God rules. It's where God's people obey Him. It's where His enemies are judged. Only God brings the kingdom. Here's what Stephen Wellam writes. Jesus didn't come to perform signs and wonders as just another but greater Moses. He didn't come to heal as just another but greater Elisha. Or to prophesy as just another but a greater Isaiah. He didn't come to rule over Israel as just another but greater Davidic king. Jesus came to do all of these works, but not as a mere man empowered by the Spirit of God. Jesus came as the Son of God to bring the new creation, the new covenant, an eschatological, the end time kingdom 
of the Creator Covenant Lord. Jesus came to redeem, judge, and rule as God Himself. That's what Advent is about. That's what Christmas is about. And the Old Testament prophets, they saw this. They saw the advent of a kingdom at the end of history that would be ruled by the son of David. Nicodemus, he thought being a part of the kingdom was just about eternal life. And he thought that was in the future and that you would just enter into eternal life because God would just give it. And the Gospels talk about eternal life in the kingdom of God like this. They actually talk about it not being entirely in the future, but being now. John, in the Gospel of John, often stresses that you enter in, into this life now. Because Jesus is life. God's transforming reign has, in some ways, already been realized. For the most part, Jews believed that every Jew would enter the kingdom of God in this last day. In this end of time kingdom that would come. All the Jews would be admitted into God's kingdom. Now here is Jesus telling a leader of the Jews, he cannot see the kingdom. He cannot enter the kingdom unless he is transformed. Unless he is born again. Unless he gets life from this new realm, this new kingdom, unless there is some sort of spiritual rebirth powerfully done in his soul by the Spirit of God. There has to be, even for Nicodemus, a radical transformation, new life. John Calvin said, by the term born again, he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole person, the whole nature. Hence it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man, verse 4, be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, to him, entering the kingdom didn't have to do with any kind of transformation in the individual. It was about God simply bringing eternal life. He didn't understand what Jesus is talking about. How can these things be? Verse 9. He's skeptical. He's amazed. Jesus says, don't marvel. He is marveling. Verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one. So he just reiterates again. you got to be born again. He's just saying it again, unless one is born of water, a natural birth, a physical birth, and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is important. This is certain. This is trustworthy. The Old Testament actually looked forward to this. This time when God's Spirit would be poured out on mankind 
and the result would be blessing and righteousness. Most important of all is Ezekiel 36. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you. Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus is the one who brings the spirit. He fulfills these verses. The the focus is on this impartation of God's nature. This is the background for John 3. This is the background for Christmas. This is the reason for the advent of Christ. It's the plan of God to save the world. Nicodemus knew Ezekiel 36. But he just didn't see it. Jake mentioned last week, I made that announcement about the everyday Bible. And we, we had purchased what we thought would be enough, but we didn't purchase enough. And after the meeting, I walked out into the, the lobby and Pat Pierce was out there who works in our bookstore. And he attacked me and said, you caused a riot in the bookstore. Every one of the Bibles was sold before the meeting was over. While Chris is doing the benediction, you're going to the bookstore to buy a Bible. This church has problems, you know? There's a moment when the meeting ends, you know? Stick around. We work hard at this. Let's not leave early, even for a Bible. People weren't happy with me. I was getting emails and texts. What am I, a Bible salesman? <laughs> I mean, think about it though. What a great problem for a pastor to have. Isn't that a great problem? Then we order all these others and people are stealing them, man. They're coming to the office. It's a powerful work of the Spirit that you would want to have a Bible to read through the Bible next year. That. That's the spirit. We notice the wind's effects, don't we? Doesn't take a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. One of the effects, thank you. One of the effects is of the work of the spirit, like the wind, we can see what the wind does. We can see what the spirit does is a hunger for God's word. So I want you to be encouraged Even if you don't make it, even if you quit the first week of January, that desire is evidence of grace. God is near and He's at work in your life. You hunger for His Word. I would say you've been born again. Maybe you're a teenager here today and you're not doing well in your soul. Your parents are concerned. 
You know it. You know there's something missing. I, I would like to ask you, maybe you need to be born again. I was born again when I was 17 years old. And my life was transformed. Prior to that, no desire to read the Bible. No desire to go to church. Actually antagonistic. Critical. Arrogant. Proud. Sinful. But I was born again. I, my life was transformed. I remember my dad didn't, didn't have any problems believing me. He wanted to believe me and was very excited for me. My mom, not so much. She was going to be more difficult. But then when I got my first grade card and my grades were transformed, she became a believer. <laughs> Maybe you're like Nicodemus. You're a teenager and you're skeptical. Maybe you're confused. You don't see it. You're in the dark. God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. And He gave His Son so we can be born again. And there's nobody in here that didn't need to be born again. I've been praying especially for you this week for some reason. And my hope is that you will be born again and transformed. Nicodemus was like so many other Pharisees. He was just too confident in his own obedience, his own no need for repentance, no need for transformation. Certainly my whole life doesn't need to be cleansed. My heart doesn't need to be transformed. He was wrong. He was in the dark. He needed to be born again. No matter what your religious credentials are this morning, you have to be born again. And the reason for Christmas is God's plan to save the world through Jesus Christ. Secondly, another thing we learn is the way of salvation is through God the Son, this one that has come. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's Jesus instructing a teacher of Israel. How can he presume to do this? Well, he is the Son of Man who has come from heaven. He is the great revealer. He is the one who has truth. Wisdom is found in heaven. And heaven was his home before the world began. He has heavenly Knowledge, And that's why He is the source of revelation. In Numbers 21, a bronze snake on a pole was the means God used to give new life to the children of Israel. The Lord disciplined them because of their complaining. Because of their complaining, He sent 
poisonous snakes into the camp. And if they were bitten by a snake and looked up to the bronze snake that Moses lifted up, they were saved. They were healed. God provided forgiveness, redemption, new life. It was graciously granted to them in the Old Testament. And now he is again graciously providing new life, even eternal life. How? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Moses lifted up the snake on a pole so that they could look to it and be saved and healed. And now Nicodemus is being challenged to look to Christ, to turn to Him. And we'll see in the Gospel, the readers of the Gospel of John will see that that only happens in his life when Jesus is on the cross. God the Son incarnate must be lifted up. It's the determined purpose of God. It's the reason for Christmas. Those who turn to Him and look to Him will be born again. God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son to be lifted up for the world. That whoever, verse 15, believes in Him may have eternal life. The kingdom of God is seen. You enter the kingdom of God through the saving work of God the Son. New birth. All these benefits are only received by faith. It doesn't come through sacrifices we make or good works that we do. It comes by faith alone. Eternal life is through the Son. Again, D.A. Carson, for human beings, those born of the flesh, to experience this new birth that makes them children of God, the eternal Word Himself, God, became flesh. Nicodemus could not have been expected to know all that the readers of the prologue have absorbed. John chapter 1, that we read some of those. But from his study of Scripture, his grasp of the distance between human beings and God, and the axiom that like produces like, he should have understood the need for a God-given new birth. And God's promise that He would give His people a new heart, a new nature, clean lives, and a full measure of the Spirit on the last day. And that's why Jesus told Nicodemus, he shouldn't be surprised. He shouldn't marvel. Finally, a third thing, the evidence of salvation is the work of the Spirit. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. He's making an analogy between the wind and the Spirit. In the Greek, it's the same word. So it was, it was very clear why he would do this. The point is, the wind can't be controlled. It can't be understood by human beings, especially at that time when they didn't have meteorology. But we do notice the wind's effects. We hear the wind. We see a tree move. Sometimes it's destructive and we try to find shelter. 
In the same way, we can't control the Spirit. We don't fully understand the Spirit. But it doesn't mean we can't see His effects. When the Spirit's at work, the, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. Your life is transformed when you experience the work of the Spirit. In the 18th century, there was an outpouring of the Spirit that has been called the Great Awakening. You've probably heard of it. It was a powerful work. It was so powerful and the effects were so noticeable that it scared people. And there was some, some bizarre behavior that took place in people's life. And it was said to be the response to the work of the Spirit. And so because of that, many people scoffed. And they condemned the Great Awakening and said it wasn't of God. But, but Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Massachusetts just outside of Boston. And he, he didn't endorse everything that was going on in the Great Awakening. But he defended the revival as an authentic work of God. And he wrote a book with this catchy title. The distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God applied to that uncommon operation that has lately appeared on the minds of the people of New England with a particular consideration of the extraordinary circumstances with which this work is attended. <laughs> Be a bestseller today, wouldn't it? When, when the Spirit is at work, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. And Edwards believed the Great Awakening was in many ways a genuine work of the Spirit because he observed things like Bibles selling out in the bookstore. He saw evidence. The Spirit's at work. The wind blows and it's, you, you can tell when someone is born of the Spirit. You can tell. When we go through a year like this year, it's unnerving for everyone. There's, there's a lot to be anxious about, isn't there? If not, come and talk to me afterwards because I can help you with anxiety. I mean, give you more. If you're, if you're not anxious, you're, you're either the most mature Christian in the room or you're not paying attention. God is in control though. And He can do whatever He pleases. And so what we should be praying for is a work of the Spirit of God. Pray for a great awakening. That's what we should be doing. We can do that, and we want to trust Him to do that. Nicodemus, again, verse 9, how can these things be? Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? All of this is in the Old Testament. And it's clear. But Nicodemus didn't see that should give us a warning, shouldn't it? We need to pray. Oh Lord, don't let me be in the dark. 
Lord, don't let me come to Jesus in the dark and not see the kingdom. Don't let me be in the dark and not enter the kingdom. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Open the eyes of my heart and let me see the Son of God was born to become a man on the first Christmas. He is the Son of God incarnate. And He is a gift to you. And I want you to see it. He's near. He's at work in your life. He'll freely give you all that you need. Verse 16. Let's end with this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The theme of John 3, these famous verses, is the mission of God the Son incarnate. The meaning of Christmas is grounded in the love of God. And the result is eternal life. And that's why Christians delight so much in the Advent season. It's expectant hope. It's this hope, this joy-filled hope that we have in this Savior. It's a reminder, God so loved the world that He gave, He sent His one and only Son so we wouldn't perish. Advent is about this great gift. The Father sent, the Father gave His best, His unique his beloved son. So Paul says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is near. He's at work in your life. And he will freely give you everything that you need. That's why we delight in this season of Advent, it reminds us of this great and glorious love of God. The love of God is not the result of us being worthy of His love. God is love. God loved the world because God is love. What's amazing about God's love is the world is so bad. The world is so wicked that elsewhere, John will say, will forbid Christians to love the world, to love anything in the world. They're not to love the world with a selfish love that, that has them participate with the world. God loves the world with a selfless love, with a costly love. God loves the world to redeem the world. There's no contradiction here. We're chosen out of this world. If you're a believer, we're chosen out of the world. No one would have become a disciple apart from the love of God for the world because we were all part of the world. And we were chosen out of the world. And we are given a mission to witness in the power of the Spirit to those in the world in hopes of winning them from the world. And that's why we prayed for folks in Mexico and, and Ethiopia because they are rightfully on a mission. God promises terrifying condemnation on the world in sin. 
And yet he still loves the world so much that the gift he gave to the world, the gift of his son, remains the world's only hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Open our eyes, Lord. This Advent season, Lord, I pray, this Christmas, I pray that you would open our eyes in the midst of this year that has been so difficult, Lord. Open our eyes and let us see the love of God like we've never seen it before. We cry out to you, Lord. We pray for an outpouring of the Spirit, a great awakening, and let it begin with us as individuals. Let it, let it begin with our congregation. Let us be filled afresh with the Spirit powerfully. Let there be evidence, Lord, that you are at work, I pray. Father, we're going to return to singing now, and as we do, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and we would be filled with delight once again. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.